so uh, like three weeks ago, maybe four, I almost got into a fist fight with a senior citizen. It wasn't my fault. Um, I was at Walmart, and I had some time to kill before my next meeting, so I just was like walking around, you know, I was in a good mood, saying hi to the people I knew, checking things out, not buying anything because everything in the world's too expensive, and, and I was walking down this aisle, and I was looking up at a certain kind of cookie, and as I was looking at that certain kind of cookie, I accidentally bumped into this gentleman's loosely used term, cart. And I said, oh, sir, I'm really sorry. I didn't mean to do that. And this guy looked at me, and he goes, the next person who runs into me is going to pay. And I was like, uh, do you mean, like, for your groceries? Um, and he just kind of, like, because I knew what I was doing, right? I'm no idiot. <laughs> and he growled at me. And he went, and just pushed his card on past me. And I just kind of like went about my day, right? But I think about how fun it would have been to get in a fight with that man. Because at least then forever I could tell people about the time an old man sent me to the hospital. Um, but then like two aisles later, I'm doing the same thing, right? Just walking around, killing time, thinking about what's coming next. And, I, and this lady, as I'm standing still, and not even in the middle of the aisle, but standing still like towards the side of the aisle like a normal proper person would, this lady runs her cart into me. And I look at her, and I was like, hey. And she goes, excuse me. And I was like, sorry, did my standing still get in the way of your moving? And I almost got in a fight with a lady at Walmart. And you know, I would have seen the headline of the Maysville paper would have been all about it. And it was like the weirdest day, right? I was like, everyone is so mad today. So I went back to my car because I was like, I don't want to deal with anybody else where everybody's mad. And I got online and I got on Facebook and everyone there is mad all the time. And I was like, why is everyone I know angry all the time? And so I, I kid you not, this is the way that my next five minutes went. I, I typed into the Google I typed, why is everyone so mad? And I came across this, this article that was really compelling, but it really answered a little bit of the question. And, and I started to think about this for myself. And I started to think, what is it that makes me mad? And I started kind of like thinking through, because I'm, I'm like the pastor, I, I talk about this, so I think about these kind of things. You all are like, I gotta go to the next thing. And I'm always like, why are people mad? And then the red light changes to green and everybody yells at me behind me. But I'm like, so as I'm thinking about this moment, right, and I'm thinking about what is it that makes you mad? And I don't want you to say it out loud because it could be embarrassing. But I started thinking through, like, what is it that makes me mad? And some of you are like, when the guy stands in the middle of the aisle at Kroger, right? Or like something like that. But I started thinking through more about what is it that makes us mad? What is it that makes people mad? And I came across that article. It was in Time Magazine about a year ago, and it was written by a, a Jewish rabbi named David Wolp. And, and David Wolp wrote this really compelling, it's a really short article, but it's about why it seems like right now, and in the last year, year and a half, it seems to most people like, the culture is as angry as it's ever been. And so this article was really compelling, but it kind of boils down into this one little paragraph in the middle. And it says this, it says, we have instant access to every catastrophe in the world. And so we obsess over creating perfect security. It says extravagant lifestyles are paraded through our living rooms each night. And so it becomes difficult to be satisfied with our ample but 
comparatively modest means. And he goes on and says, much of our frustration arises in an age of unlimited expectation when atrocities and injustices are constantly paraded in front of our eyes. And so David Wolfe's point was that because we see so much, we expect so much. And I, and I started thinking through it more, like, what does it really look like to be angry? Why is it that we're so angry all the time? And I started to realize that mostly because I started seeing it for sure in my boys, right? Abel is uh, now three, Cohen is almost one, and I see them get mad on occasion. Like, if I was your dad, you'd probably get mad too, but I see them get mad on occasion, and, I, and I've deduced it to, to just a couple of things, you see, Cohen is like, he's almost one, and he's crawling, and he's cruising, and he's doing all those things, and almost one-year-old does it. And to be honest, don't call social services, but there are times when I forget we have a one-year-old, because he's like so quiet and calm and relaxed, that most of the time I'm like, oh yeah, there's, there's another kid here. Because Abel is the opposite, right? Abel is high energy, he's talkative, he's always making noise and always sword fighting all the time, like doing whatever it takes to, to make sure that he's in the front of your attention. And Cohen's just like chilling in the corner eating a raisin. And so, but it doesn't, it doesn't take long, though, for Cohen to get your attention, because when something's not going his way, it's like this light switch flips, and he goes from calm, cool, relaxed, almost forget he's there, baby, to like shrieking bat from the pit of Hades, baby, and there's this sound that he makes that you might end up hearing today, that it's like this, this squeal of anger that comes from the pit of his belly, and even if the thing you took away from him was a choking hazard that would kill him, or, or poisonous food, he can't, like... There's not poisonous food in our house, like, but you know what I'm saying, right? I'm going to call social services. He forgets his kids there and feeds him poison. Like, it's not, but, but this thing happens, right? And it happens when he just gets angry like that because something doesn't go his way. And it happens in the three-year-old. And what Abel is not learning yet, but he's going to learn, is that we are way more stubborn and way more patient. So you can throw that fit as long as you want, but we're going to win. But every time one of them gets mad, they get mad because something doesn't go their way. And then I started realizing that almost every time their dad gets mad, I get mad because something wasn't going my way. The guy at Walmart got mad at me because I bumped into his car, and just even though it was a slight inconvenience, it wasn't going his way anymore. The lady got mad because even though I was standing there first, she was in, I, I was in her path, right? It was, it was her. And, and this happens time and time again, that if you were to, to just kind of keep track of all of the times in a day, in a week, in a month where you got angry, I can almost guarantee that somewhere in the neighborhood of 98% of those times would be because something didn't go the way you wanted it to go. Because something didn't happen the way you wanted it to happen. Because something happened for someone else that you wanted to happen for yourself. And, and I know that there are exceptions and there are people who say, no, I only get mad at injustice and I only get mad at this or that. And I know, like, it's okay. You can be honest for a minute. Like, everyone's a little selfish. And I even know people when I've, I've had this conversation who say, you know, I don't get mad for myself. I only get mad for my kids. And I say, oh, so there's like a word in there that's important. Because it's your kid. Right? You don't get mad when the other kid doesn't get playing time. You just get mad when your kid doesn't. And I, and I don't say that to, to cast dispersion on you because I am maybe more guilty of this than even you. 
But I heard a pastor say this week that most of his congregation has no problem questioning the existence of God when their tire goes flat on the highway. But they're all pretty sure he exists when the check shows up in the mail that they didn't know and weren't expecting. And there's this moment that happens that when life is going my way, everything is good and I'm happy. But when something bad happens, it's time for me to get mad. And here, here's, here's the thing, like, this is going to get real heavy real fast, and, and so I hope, I hope that's okay. But what happens is, for most of us, the day that we decided to follow Jesus, or for you, if you haven't yet made that decision, I'm going to go ahead and give you this warning, that the moment you decide to follow Jesus, you do what we, you say, what we say is you die to yourself. And so what that means is what is important and what matters no longer becomes I, me, and mine. The moment you decide to follow Jesus, you give up everything. And this means your own rights, your own desires, your own wants are all laid down to do what Jesus asks us to do and pick up the cross that he has called us to carry. And I want to make sure that we're clear. This doesn't mean like you have to wear a robe and carry this giant wooden cross around and go, like, or anything like that. But when we decide to follow Jesus, when we decide to become a part of the kingdom of God, the decision that we then make is a decision to lay down our own rights and our own wants, is a decision to say, I can't be mad about me anymore. Because when you follow Jesus, you commit to something much bigger than yourself. Your life no longer becomes about looking out for number one, which I admit is the large portion of the society. That is normal for people to think that way. But when you decide to follow Jesus, your life changes drastically. When you decide to enter the kingdom of God, you give up the right to protect yourself. You give up the right to care only about yourself. And I admit, like, this isn't the kind of thing that most churches talk about a lot because it's really hard to grow a crowd by constantly saying, guess what, life's not about you, sorry about your luck. Like, it's really not that popular to talk about the sacrifice that it takes to follow Jesus. It's much more popular to talk about when you follow Jesus, many blessings will come your way. And I believe that's true, but I don't believe that's why we get into this. And so what happens is the day you decide to follow Jesus is the day that you have to make the decision to make your life not about you anymore. And I I promise you, because there are days when I do this right, and you'll be amazed at how much less angry and how much less angst and impatience you have when you realize and make the conscious decision to say, my life is not about me. But I want to tell you, like, I, I don't mean this to be a, a beatdown of the 130 or so people who are in this room right now, because that's, that's not my intention. This is an indictment of, of all of humanity for all of time. If you look back at the beginning of the history of, of people, the first two people, Adam and Eve, are in the Garden of Eden, and God says you can eat from any fruit, any tree you want, any fruit you want, except for this one. And Adam and Eve, one of the very first decisions they make is to eat from the tree that God said they're not allowed to eat from because no one's going to tell me what I can and can't do. Right? 
Like We should have the right to eat from that tree if we want to. And one of the very first decisions in recorded history was a decision that was largely a selfish decision. And so we're not the first people to only think of ourselves, but we're also not the last people to try and change that. You see, for the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about this story of Jonah. And I have no doubt that, depending on your biblical background, you probably have some knowledge of the story of Jonah, right? He's the guy who gets swallowed up in the belly of the big fish. But we've been talking more in depth about the life of Jonah. And we've been talking about the first week we said that Jonah, Jonah ran away from God. But no matter how far he ran, God was right there. Because the moment Jonah decides to turn around and run back to God, God was there. And God didn't scold him. God wasn't there to punish him. God was there with open arms to welcome him back and say, I'm so glad you're here. And then we talked about last week about Jonah running with God. And and when Jonah runs with God, he runs with God to Nineveh, the place where God called him to go. And it's there in Nineveh that he tells the whole city that God is chasing after them. And it's there in that moment that we start to see that God is not only relentlessly pursuing us, but he's pursuing all of humanity. And we've talked now for three weeks about the evil, evil way of Nineveh, right? I mean, there are some nasty, despicable people. But in spite of the the war crimes they commit, in spite of the awful things they've done, God still pursues them. But Jonah, Jonah feels a little differently about them. Last week after we concluded and we started working on this week and what we were talking about, I kind of went back and I noticed something. Check this out with me. In in Jonah chapter 3, Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey out, and he called, in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. And I read it again and again, and I started to think that if you look close enough, that if you listen hard enough, you can almost hear Jonah smiling. Because Jonah despises Nineveh. Jonah hates everything there is to hate about Nineveh. Those are his enemies. Those are the bad people. That is not his home. It is not his country. Those are not the people he wants to know anything about. So he gets to go through town, and in his mind, he's going through town saying, y'all are about to go down, y'all are about to go down. And the city of Nineveh hears, don't ever sing again. Okay, I promise I won't. But, But here's what happens. The city of Nineveh hears him. And they turn around. And in this moment, they stop running and they do with this fancy church word that we use called repent. And they turn around and say, we don't want to be those people anymore. And so what happens is God sees this and God relents. He says, Jonah, I was going to destroy them, but they've all turned around. So now my pursuit of them ends and they've started running to me. And so you would think, That Jonah, who preached to a crowd of 100,000 or so Ninevites, is going to be celebrating this victory, right? But instead, Jonah's angry. Jonah's furious. Jonah's mad because all of these people have turned around. It says in chapter 4, it says, It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster." 
Therefore now, Lord, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah sees the entire city repent and gets mad about it. He gets so mad about it because he hates the Ninevites so much that he says, God, I told you they were going to turn around, and now I have to see the Ninevites be good people. I'd rather die than live in a world where the Ninevites are good people. I mean, think about how dramatic of a statement that is. Think about your very worst enemy. Think about the person you despise more than anyone else. I have, I have a couple, um, but I'm not going to tell you about them because that's weird. But I will tell you about one that's kind of like a fake one, but it still really happens. It's, <clears throat> I'm sorry if this includes you, but it's all of Nicholas County. Um, it's okay, like, we can all repent still. Uh, it's a long story, but to make a long story short, the Brent County Polar Bear football team beat the Nicholas County Blue Jackets fair and square, 22 to 21, laid claim to the district title. The Nicholas County Blue Jackets say they won it. It's this big feud that's happening, right? Like, most of you, it doesn't matter. You're all rolling your eyes. It's over. It's cool. I don't like Nicholas County. Nicholas County doesn't like me. We'll just put it that way, okay? But if anyone from Nicholas County, stands a few people, I'm just kidding. If anyone from Nicholas County were to walk through these doors today, I'd get over it pretty quick. If anyone, from, if anyone from my past who's hurt me were to walk through these doors today, it would take me a minute, but I'd still be overjoyed to see their face here. And it's not, and I'm not telling you this story to tell you that I'm morally superior to you, because I'm not. I'm telling you this story to tell you that there is nothing more important to me in this world beyond all of my own comforts, beyond all of my own possessions, and all of my own life than to see people come and turn around and run back to God. But Jonah was unwilling to put that aside. And Jonah was unwilling to say, you know what? You're my enemy, but now you're not. And I, and I think for a lot of churches, and maybe even some of us here in this church today, that might be our biggest struggle, is that we're unwilling to put aside our personal feelings. And there's some angst and there's some hatred. And you can say, if you only knew the story, if you only knew how that person hurt me, if you only knew how bad they were, then you would know how I feel. And I get you. But at the same time, I have to ask you this question, and I want you to be honest with yourself. If your enemy were baptized today, how would you feel? If that person, if, that, if your ex, if a member of ISIS, if that person at work who you can't stand, if that neighbor who won't pick up the stuff in their front yard, if that, if that person who ran into you at Walmart and you're still holding a grudge four weeks later, whatever it is, if that person were to show up, how would you feel? And this is an important question to ask, not because I need you to feel a certain way about that, but it's an important question to ask so that you can examine your own heart and so that you can say, am I only focused on me or am I focused on what God has called me to? 
Is my life still focused on just me and mine? Or is my life focused on what I committed to and something much bigger? What happens next is really interesting. Jonah is, is sulking out from the sea, right? Or out from the city. And he sees what's happening and he sees that God relents and he's angry. And God says this. God says, Jonah, did you do well to be angry? In another version, in another translation, God actually says to Jonah, what right do you have to be mad? And he's like, you don't like those people because they're bad people, but, but, but don't you remember just a few days ago when you ran away from my audible voice? Don't you remember just a few days ago when you were as bad as those people? And God's making this larger point to Jonah where he's saying, you ran away from me just like they ran away. You ran away from me, and you disobeyed, and you, were, and you were angry, and you were mad, and you did all of those things, and it's exactly what they're doing. The difference is you don't want them to get what you got. Right? Because Jonah ran away, Jonah disobeyed, but Jonah got mercy. Jonah got forgiveness. Jonah got a second chance. But when it's time for Nineveh to get that second chance, Jonah gets angry, and Jonah gets mad. And so God decides that he's going to teach Jonah a little bit more about this. And I'm just going to tell you this story because it, it, it's an important part, but it happens in chapter, chapter 4, verses 5 through 11, and, and it's really a compelling part of the story. But what happens is that Jonah, while he's camped out away from the city watching what happens, God builds up a tree. And as he builds up this plant and this tree, it provides Jonah with some shade. And Jonah's thankful for the shade and he's thankful for the tree. And, and life seems good for Jonah for a moment and he's happy. But then the next day, God sends a worm and the worm destroys the tree. And the Bible says that an east wind comes and, it, and it's a scorching wind and it makes Jonah extremely uncomfortable and the sun makes him faint. So Jonah gets hot and sunburned. But he's angry, and he's angry at the tree. And God again says to him, Jonah, what right do you have to be angry? Check this out in verse 10. He says, you pity the plant. You didn't labor. You didn't make it grow. It came into being in a night, and it perished in a night. And he says, Jonah, you can be as mad as you want, but you had nothing to do with this. And he says this in verse 11. And he says, should not I pity Nineveh, the great city? in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know their right from their left. And I think this is an important verse for all of my cattle friends. God had great pity on the city because they had a lot of cattle. So y'all can take that one. Um, but he asked Jonah this question. He says, how can I not have pity on them? How can I not have grace from the, for them? How can I not have mercy on these people? He says, you can think what you want about them, but there are 120,000 of them who don't know what they're doing. And I think it's an important time for us to remind ourselves that the gift that God gave us, the gift of this mercy that God has bestowed upon us, is not something we've earned or deserved. Jonah didn't get the second chance from God because he was living right. Like, Jonah doesn't get that chance because he promised to be, you know, like, because he was doing what God said. Jonah was running away from God, fleeing from him as far as he could. 
And God pursued him to give him a second chance. But in his mind, he deserves the second chance because he looked like the people God wanted, right? Because he acted like the people God wanted. Not like those Ninevites. But this is the lesson that Jonah teaches us for four chapters of this story. Is that God is pursuing all of his creation regardless of their race, regardless of their income, regardless of their religion. And there are two things that I think this, this last chapter of Jonah teaches us that I want you to hear. The first is that anything good is from God. Anything good that happens, anything good that occurs in your life happens because of God. The only reason there is any good on this planet is because of God. It's the reason that in heaven there is only good and in hell there is only bad. Because hell is the absence of God. In fact, in James chapter 1, verse 17, it says, Every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights, of whom there is no variation and there is no or in their shadow due to change. So anything that's good happens from God. And so the only reason we have anything good, anything to boast about, anything to, be, to share, and anything to ha- be happy for is because God gave it to us. The only reason that we've been given that mercy, the only reason that God gives us a second chance is because he gave it to us. The second thing that I think the book of Jonah teaches us is that God's heart beats for all of his creation. It doesn't just beat for the two billion people on the planet who claim to be a follower of Jesus. It doesn't just beat for the white, middle-class people who are mostly well-behaved and who know the proper way to say hello to a stranger. God's heart beats for the two billion, but it also beats for the four or five billion who don't yet know him. It beats for the two billion who think that Allah is the only way. And it beats for them to know the name of Jesus. And God is relentlessly pursuing them to know Jesus as much as he's relentlessly pursuing us to know Jesus. It beats for the billion or so people who say there is no God, and it beats for them to know there is a God, and his name is is God, and and his son is Jesus, and he sent him to save you. It beats for the people who don't behave as well as us. It beats for the people who don't look like we do. It beats for the people who don't act like we do, who don't think like we do. God is relentlessly pursuing all of his creation. And the hardest part about this is that God is pursuing our enemy. Is that God is pursuing that person that you and I don't like. That God is pursuing that person at work who, as soon as you say the word enemy, is the first person who comes to mind. God is pursuing your your ex. God is pursuing your parents who hurt you. He's pursuing that person who made you miserable for so long and you finally got away and you hope to never see them again. God is pursuing over and over again, time and time again, every person on this planet, and he's pursuing them through his son, Jesus. Because all that he wants in this world is to give them one more chance to stop running and to turn around. Because in that moment that they do, he is there. And 
he's just waiting. So here in a moment, as the men pass the bread and they pass the cup, I want you to do two things. The first thing that I want you to do is I want you to remember that this is his body broken for you. This is his blood poured out for you. But the second thing I want you to do is I, I want you to, before you take the bread and the cup, to pray for one person. And that one person can be an, an enemy. That one person can be someone who annoys you. It can be someone you love dearly. But I want you to pray for that one person because part of God's pursuit of that one person is you. Part of God's relentless pursuit of that one person is sending Jesus and sending you to this moment when you realize that Jesus died for you and now it's time for you to share that with them. I'm not asking you to share the gospel with an entire classroom. I'm not asking you to share it with an entire room of people. I'm asking you just one person to pray for that, that this week, that this month, that God would present to you an opportunity to share with that one person that God is chasing them and that God wants them to stop running. Or maybe for you, this is the moment when you stop running. And you've been running away from God for a long time and you decide that today is the day that it stops. I want you to make that choice. And I want to help you make that choice. After this service, when it, when it concludes, I want to talk to you about what it means to stop running. But each one of us needs to take this moment today and pray for 